social media from day one was built to be addictive and Facebook makes money off of people engaging more. So it's really in their best interest from a profitability standpoint to get people to engage as long as possible with content. And unfortunately, a lot of the content that's driving that engagement is more sensational and is driving division in the country, in my opinion. Hi, everybody. This is How Tech Becomes Law, a public interest tech podcast about technology, public policy, and career advice. We are your co-hosts, Jingyan Zhang and Drew Gupta. This week, we have a conversation with Megan Klassen from Gambit Strategies about digital advertising, especially for political campaigns, and how to regulate social media. Megan started her own firm, Gambit Strategies, after working in digital advertising for over 10 years, from the largest brand advertisers in the country to multiple presidential campaigns, and all the way up and down the ballot. Most recently, she was a senior paid media advisor to Joe Biden's campaign, leading their digital advertising work and executing the largest digital ads program ever run by a Democratic campaign. Before that, she led J.B. Pritzker's digital efforts in his successful campaign for governor in Illinois, which Politico called the best campaign money can buy and recognized as the best online advertising campaign at the 2019 Reed Awards. Thank you so much for joining us today, Megan. Uh, it's great to meet you and would love to hear more about you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role on the, the Biden 2020 campaign? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I was actually brought on during the general election in the Biden campaign. I actually worked for Kamala Harris during the primary and helped lead her digital persuasion efforts. And then when Biden became the nominee, I was asked to come onto the campaign as a senior advisor and lead their digital advertising team as a stand-in digital advertising director. My main focus being digital persuasion, which is what we call the digital advertising programs that aim to identify swing voters and, and change their minds. I also worked on some of the mobilization or GOTV efforts, which are campaigns that seek to identify people who are low propensity voters and get them to turn out for your candidate. So it was a mix of those things, but I would say primarily working on the persuasion side of things. So how was working on the Biden 2020 campaign similar or different than the previous campaigns that you worked on, such as Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016 or Pritzker's campaign for the governor of Illinois in 2018? Well, one of the craziest things was just that everyone was completely remote, which coming from Hillary Clinton's campaign, where we were basically in the office almost 24-7 for the last few months, and everybody was constantly all hands on deck and running around. And you're in this campaign vibe when you're in a presidential campaign office where something's always going on, there's news stories, and everyone's reacting to things, and there's all this energy. So it was certainly strange to do that kind of campaign just sitting in front of a computer on Zoom calls all day in comparison. And I think you definitely lose something from doing that. But we learned a lot of lessons from having to be remote. We didn't have the luxury of having President Biden's time to film all the time, for example, because we had to be very cautious Mm -hmm. about who he was exposed to and really limit doing those kind of direct-to-camera videos. So that made us more creative in terms of how we were script writing ads for digital. And another disadvantage is that 
when you're working on these ads, you have to turn out really quickly. You oftentimes are standing over an editor's shoulder being like, hey, yeah. let's change this or let's do this. So it, it made the editing process slower, but I also think we got better at communicating and setting expectations up front, which is long-term helpful to the party. And then I would say the other piece is in 2016, it was a much bigger battle to get funding for digital advertising. Yeah. People definitely still perceived TV as king. That was where the most of our investment was going. And from a creative perspective, we were really just mostly taking our television ads and putting them online, maybe making some banner ads for those kind of concepts that weren't video. But since then, I think our digital advertising team always recognized this, but the larger Democratic Party has recognized that it's really important to invest in digital first creative because people's mm. inten uh, attention spans and the creative experience is very different online. So since 2016, there's been, I would say, a lot has evolved in the space in terms of both creative, but also the investment, the percent of money for paid media that goes into digital as compared to TV and other places. Yeah. Can you actually expand on that more when you say, so over the last four years from 2016 to the present, that how have they evolved or what are the differences that you see in terms of the ads themselves that is running on the campaign in terms of television versus on digital platforms? Well, when we make uh, video ads for online, a lot of times we're thinking very intentionally about the user experience on every platform. For example, mm. on Facebook, 90 plus percent of the impressions are served on a mobile device with no audio. People are scrolling through their newsfeed on Facebook and Instagram. They're spending three to five seconds with an ad. So you really have to make creative that either capture someone's attention so that they stay and they watch it or gets a message across in three seconds, something very simple that they can grasp right away. Otherwise, you're just wasting your money because they're not going to sit there and watch some 30-second TV ad. And even YouTube, where you can run force view 15-second ads, a lot of YouTube impressions are also served on a mobile phone. So making sure that mm -hmm. any imagery is easily um, seen on a mobile phone that has obviously a smaller screen and just really optimizing that way. That's been a huge effort over the last four years from for me. Have you found that the easiest way to do that is micro-targeting, like targeting folks based on some sort of segmentation? What attributes might you use to do that if you do? Yeah, micro-targeting is definitely really important. We always say uh, that digital should be both a broadcast and a narrowcast medium, meaning that I mm. think you always, because people spend so much time online and platforms have different varying degrees of ability to target, Facebook, for example, you can get very narrow, but a partner like Hulu you don't really have the best data available to be able to narrow in on that audience. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be investing in online streaming, for example, because we know those are really premium ad impressions. But when it comes to, to micro-targeting, we work really closely with our analytics team to identify, first of all, who is persuadable, and then what messages persuade different groups of individuals that we need to reach online um, so that we can set up different tracks to reach them with the right message. Um, on the Biden campaign, we had about seven to 10 different targeting tracks per state, including things like what you would expect, like targeting Black voters. Uh, we had different targeting tracks for younger Black voters versus older Black voters. Mm -hmm. Younger Black voters tend to be more progressive than older Black voters and have different things that they care about. We had many different segments for different groups of Hispanic and Latinx voters. Um, and again, making sure that we're getting both, I would say both in terms of the message that different 
groups of Hispanic and Latinx voters care about, which really varies a lot, as well as the right language, which can be really tricky because it's both the exact language that they speak, but also some people consume in Spanish and English online. And how are we ensuring that we're reaching people who have with the proper creative who are, who are consuming in English online and using that targeting? But, but even beyond that, we had tracks like a veterans track when Trump had those atrocious comments about people in our military who had served, we launched a track targeting veterans in our battleground states, talking about how horrible that was. And then we served them messaging later about how Joe Biden had gotten endorsed by a bunch of military leaders who thought that he would be the best person to serve the country. We had a a rural track for voters who lived in super rural areas in different battleground states. We had a seniors track for voters over 65. So just making sure that we were serving people messages that that they care that were the issues that they cared about the most. So that's really interesting in terms of all the different segmentation that you just talked about. And I was curious if you can expand on a little more, and especially given the amount of data that would be available to you. So as an example, when you said targeting different Latinx voters um, based on potentially the language that they prefer uh, or they speak is how you think about how you determine that and whether voters themselves would feel in terms of seeing different types of ads than their neighbors because the campaign has determined that this is a Spanish-speaking Latinx voter and their neighbor is an English-speaking Latinx voter. Yeah. Well, it's like, number one, we always start with the voter file and analyzing the people who actually turn out and vote. So some of it will be first-party data that we're uploading to Facebook and potentially programmatically where we're trying to reach people that we know are going to vote or doing some lookalike model using a seed audience to reach voters that are similar to other groups of voters. But because Facebook and Google have taken away a lot of data that political advertisers can use to reach people, we're very reliant on geographic data because your mm-hmm. geography is a really good indicator of who you are. They can indicate things like race or education or household income. So using different people's zip code to really hone in on the type of messages that they might be receptive to has been really helpful to us. Does that raise, if Google is taking information away and, and Facebook is taking information away, does that raise privacy concerns? Is that the thought process behind reducing maybe the granularity with which you can segment? Or is that something that you weren't you know, really concerned about in the first place and we're finding folks are, are okay with this kind of targeting? I think that, that Google and Facebook, when they're thinking about data privacy, I think that they're taking an approach where, from an advertising perspective where They would rather be cautious with digital advertisers. I can't say that they're taking the same approach when it comes to organic content, but when it comes to paid, they've been a little bit more careful as to what data is available and how we can reach people. So yeah, I mean, expanding on that point in terms of the work that you do with the campaigns on platforms such as Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and others, where there is this trend on a lot of these platforms for sensationalism and potentially even for misinformation and disinformation that we've seen both in the political sphere, but also more recently when it comes to healthcare information with COVID and vaccines and other kinds of areas. How has that impacted your work with these platforms in terms of working with these campaigns and making sure that the campaign's messages are actually breaking through? Yeah, that's a great question. Social media from day one was built to be addictive and Facebook 
makes money off of people engaging more. So it's really in their best interest from a profitability standpoint to get people to engage as long as possible with content. And unfortunately, a lot of the content that's driving that engagement is more sensational and is driving division in the country, in my opinion. And I think that we'll hear all the time, like, Democrats need to be better at social media like Republicans are. And Republicans are right now manipulating the algorithm by posting content intentionally that's sensational to drive engagement. They've learned that they can do this by actually engaging liberals. A pretty big campaign on Twitter, people saying, please do not share Republicans' content, even if it's crazy, because we're actually contributing to the spread by retweeting them and saying, this is messed up, and trying to call out the fact that what they're saying is untrue or crazy, but that actually leads to more people ultimately seeing that content. So we have to be really careful because they're using that knowledge to get more eyeballs on their posts. I mean, I don't think it's responsible for anyone. I don't think Democrats have stayed away from this so far, but I don't think it's responsible for leaders to be intentionally driving division in America for the sake of getting extra social media engagement. that's That's not right. And I think that Democrats have to continue to try to break through by doing things that are helpful to Americans by having policies that appeal to people. And that might mean that we have to rely more on paid advertising to get that content in front of people. But I still think that that that's the right thing to do for the country, because I don't think we should be contributing to a problem that's already snowballing. How are you navigating the trade-off of we got to get as many eyes on democratic messaging. We got to get democratic messaging out there. And also, we don't want to contribute to sensationalism and we don't want to feed this giant monster that's out there while still wanting to win. Yeah. It's like, it's such a tough choice because partially when you think about the things that overall we're trying to accomplish, for example, if if we want to say, oh, I wish we could get more seats in the Senate so that we could pass a $15 minimum wage. Just that that's coming from a good place. And maybe we could win more Senate seats if we started being more sensational on social media and getting more eyeballs on senators' posts. But I also think that ultimately, we have to think about the long-term fate of our country. And I think the divisiveness is already very extreme right now. And we don't want to lead ourselves into a place where we are so torn apart that it leaves an opening for somebody even worse than Trump to come in and take over. We don't want to end our democracy because we want to elect some people today in the next five to 10 years. So I think we we do need to be responsible from that perspective, even though it's hard, it's hard to feel like you're playing the same game with different rules. I think you mentioned some really interesting insight, and I'm curious to if you can expand more in terms of this tension between possibly Republicans or right-wing politicians and um, political actors leveraging the platforms by posting sensational or potentially even misinformation as their posts and having that go viral and spread for free with the platforms delivering it on their behalf versus if Democrats are hiring individuals like yourself um, and your colleagues for paid media and actually paying the platforms to deliver their content. Is that rewarding the platforms essentially for bad behavior or issues with their algorithms by actually paying them to deliver content that should hopefully be going viral in the first place? (laughs) I know. It's so so terrible. I wish we could stop spending on Facebook today. But 
the reality of the situation is we have to reach people where they're spending time in order to be able to capture their attention. More people now get their news from social media than local news, which is terrifying. But that means we have to be there and we have to be giving people that information. And there's so many studies that have shown that the only way to combat misinformation is to get that proper information in front of people. So it's really just a reality that we live in until we're able to figure out a solution or a way to regulate either misinformation as a whole or at least the way that these algorithms are being built. Yeah, well, speaking of regulation in the free market, we have these organizations self-regulating to some extent with Facebook announcing this past month that they'll be deprioritizing some political posts. What do you think? it make a difference? <laughs> well, first of all, I think it's insane that we're allowing any industry to self-regulate. Like, can you imagine if we were like, yeah, the banks should just self-regulate themselves. It's just that is never going to work. People are always going to do what's best for their bottom line. So there's no way that this problem is going to be solved until somebody steps in and actually legislates it. I don't think that what they're doing is going to stop the spread of misinformation because essentially it is deprioritizing political content from political contributors, which in theory should stop some of that. But any individual who shares something is still going to be able to share that. It's not going to be taken down. So once that idea is out there on the internet and there's some meme out there that a million individuals are sharing on their private pages, Facebook's not going to be pulling that down. What they are going to be doing is deprioritizing CNN or deprioritizing New York Times. Maybe like Ben Shapiro also gets deprioritized or Tucker Carlson, but at what cost? We're, we're going to be deprioritizing actual news organizations as well. So I think, I don't think that it helps stop the spread. Does that make your job harder? I mean, it's like at the same time, it doesn't impact the way that advertising is delivered in any way. So the way that we are delivering information to people will still be possible. I just think it's a little bit scary that people might not be seeing factual news from news sources and are more likely to see their neighbor's opinion on something. I think that there's a better way to regulate and fact check information and get information in front of people from, from real sources that fact check. So on that point, and do you see in terms of potential regulations that given your experience that could be effective at creating that kind of future? Yeah. I mean, there was an article that came out after this past election cycle that Facebook had actually tested deprioritizing certain things in their algorithm to try to spread them to stop the spread of misinformation. And it was successful, but they also found that they lost a lot of money by doing that. And so they stopped doing it. So there's, I think that there are ways for us to regulate both the way that Facebook's prioritizing what information is seen by people at scale and also forcing them to take a harder stance on fake information and pulling it down. Because right now there's this push and pull between free speech and regulation. But at, at the very least, an algorithm is not free speech. <laughs> Even if you were to argue anyone can post what they want, that is free speech. If you want to make that hardline argument, fine. But that doesn't mean that Facebook should be able to then put that fake information in front of whoever it wants at whatever frequency it wants. So, I mean, in my opinion, we should regulate both pieces. And I don't think that fake information should be able to be posted on these platforms and be profited off of. But I think that the first step could be figuring out a way to get them to reduce the spread. One thing that I read somewhere, someone said something like, which really resonated with me, you never see 
pornography on Facebook. That's because Facebook doesn't want that on their platform. They very much understand how to remove content that they don't want on their platform from their platform. They have the most data probably of any company in the world. They know how to pull down misinformation. They just don't want to. That makes sense. What does like, I guess with pornography, it's a little bit more obvious, right? There's an image you can kind of figure out this image probably shouldn't be on Facebook. With misinformation, it might be a little harder. You mentioned fact-checking earlier. Who is a reliable source for fact-checking? Like, is that the government's job? Is that, uh, I guess right now we have third-party organizations that do that. What do you think? Yeah, I think that like having third-party organizations that have no partisan affiliation would be ideal because I don't think Facebook should be regulating it themselves. So I think having third-party fact-checkers would be the best bet. Facebook has added some policies where people can self-report if they think content is fake, but I don't think that we can assume that the individuals are going to be be able to stop the problem, the scale of the problem. There's also the fact that like a lot of these pieces of fake information are coming from the same sources. <laughs> so as we identify those sources, we can then, it's easy for them to then keep an eye on the same exact sources over and over. Like there's the contributors that that are pushing this out, I think are not as many as, <laughs> they're not as wide scale as you think. There's websites that are going to continue to post it, fake information over and over. So being able to either block them from the platform if, they, if they're violating Facebook's rules and taking a harder stance on that. I know Facebook has taken that action when it's gotten really extreme at certain points, including Donald Trump. But I think there's a better way to be able to gather that information. And the, and the, the more time that goes by, the more fake information Facebook's going to be able to pull down because it's going to continue to have that data on who, who are the people who are doing it. Well, thank you so much for spending this time talking about your experience and your career working in digital ads and politics. And I was just hoping that if you can talk a little more about your journey your in uh, terms of going from starting out 10, 15 years ago, working more in the private sector to today, where now you have your own consulting firm as well, Gambit Strategies, and, and being an entrepreneur starting in a pandemic and what that experience has been like. Yeah. So I recently started started my own firm, but prior to that, I actually started my career in brand advertising and was working for big brands like Samsung and AT&T in New York. I actually moved to New York. I When I graduated college, I worked in Cleveland, where I'm from, for about a year and a half, and basically just saved money because I knew I wanted to, to move to a big city. So I, I moved to New York City with no job and just started frantically networking after signing a lease on an apartment that I couldn't afford, and ended up falling into a digital advertising role, working on brands. But after doing that for a few years, I felt like I was working really hard, which I, I'm a very hard, hardworking person, but it felt like to what end? Like I don't need to sell more Samsung TVs, stay up till midnight working to sell more Samsung TVs. And I was was really inspired that Hillary Clinton was running for president during the primary and ended up randomly applying to work on her digital advertising team via an online application, which I feel like nobody ever gets a job <laughs> by just randomly applying online, especially a job on a presidential campaign. But it ended up that they were they were simultaneously looking for somebody who had a different background and experience to join the team to even out the the thinking on the team because everybody else came from the political side. So I was, I think, the fifth employee and helped build 
a 30 person team and was really excited to be able to be on the team, but then was devastated by the loss. You work such long hours and it's so emotional when you're on a campaign like that, that it was, it was definitely very difficult to go through that. But I, I knew, I knew I wanted to stay in politics and keep fighting the battle and ended up getting connected with J.B. Pritzker, who was running for governor at that time um, in Illinois. And I met with him and he he was very much like, digital is my top priority. I want to run the largest, most innovative statewide digital program that's ever been run. I want to test the limits on what can be done. So it was a huge opportunity. So I ended up moving to Chicago um, to run his digital operation, which was was awesome. It was a great learning experience. And he definitely, he meant what he said. He was really willing to help do whatever it took to to make our program successful, whether it was filming some silly video or we had weekly meetings to talk through what was going on and brainstorm new ideas for social media and for video. So it was it was awesome. And then I went to a big firm called GMMB, which is like the, I would say probably the largest advertising firm in the democratic space. They do TV and comms and, and digital and was brought on to lead Kamala Harris's persuasion effort in the primary, as well as just lead their digital political practice, um, which was a great experience. It was awesome to see the inner workings of a larger political firm and like really enjoyed working with everybody there. And then ultimately was asked to, to join the Biden campaign, which is, we already talked about that, so we don't have to touch on it again, but it was great to be able to, to really I mean, at first I was honestly hesitant because I'm like, I don't know if I can emotionally handle losing to Donald Trump again. <laughs> um, it was definitely a concern. And the pressure of working on a presidential campaign is is unlike no other. You you are really working all the time, 24-7. But at the end of the day, I, I couldn't really, I couldn't say no because I knew I would regret it if if we lost and I had, hadn't stepped in to help out. So that was that was a great experience. And I think really helped me think more about starting my own firm. I'd always thought about it because I think there's something so exciting to me about building something. And I've had the opportunity to build these awesome teams on Hillary's campaign and JB's campaign. But then at the end, the campaign disperses and you've built this awesome team and then they're they're gone. So to me, it was really appealing to be able to build something that that would last. And that's definitely one of our goals at Gambit. A lot of the sw- smaller political shops will hire people and then let them go every cycle. And then they'll rehire as the cycle heats up because of the nature of everything. Like you, a lot of the money that you make as a advertising firm in politics is at the very end of the cycle when everybody actually runs ads. So it's hard to maintain a large staff in those kind of like off periods. But we're, our goal is to hopefully be profitable enough that we can maintain our staff and build something that that's lasting and be this really strong digital persuasion shop in this space because they're, there's a lot of TV firms that are saying that they do digital persuasion and mobilization. Some of them do it well and actually have teams. Some of them are faking it. And then there's digital fundraising firms that raise money for candidates, which is a very different skill set. It's like basically talking to the base and trying to get them to donate. Very different audience than swing voters. And so we felt like there was this gap in the industry, Patrick McHugh, my partner and I, of people who really specialized in persuading and mobilizing voters online, which is why we started the firm. And it was definitely a, a scary and tough decision, as I'm sure anyone could imagine stepping into that situation. I had a very stable job. I just, I literally had just gotten promoted. 
I got a, a bonus, a raise, like they were treating me really well. I also like, as a woman, I think it was hard because there's always that thought in the back of your head, like, how am I going to take maternity leave if I have my own firm? And there's these different considerations that women, unfortunately, have to think about that men don't have to think about. But I remember a friend of mine that I called for advice was like, listen, the men take these chances all the time and women and diverse groups of people are always the ones who are hesitant. You just have to do it. So I, I got a lot of really great advice from people and ended up moving forward to start the firm. And it, it's been a great decision. It's been awesome being able to build the team and go out and pitch new work and win a bunch of clients. So we've been really successful so far and I'm, I'm really happy that we did it. Okay. So what I'm hearing is the pro tip is be broke, move to New York and apply to a job online. Is that what it is? Or, yeah. Or what? <laughs> yeah. It's really, really, really strategic. <laughs> no, I think it's like, yeah. I think for me, it's like, I think what I would say is like, don't be afraid to take risks, especially when you're young, because the older you get, the more you're going to be risking. That was one of the things I thought about with starting this firm is like, if I don't start it now and I have kids in a few years, I'm definitely not going to leave my stable job and start a firm when I have to worry about having a child. So like, I think that the younger you are, depending on your financial situation, the, the more risks you can take. I think the democratic organizations have been making an effort over the past couple of years to ensure that people of different financial means can have the opportunity to get into some of these roles. In the past, there were so many unpaid internships and such low-level salaries for entry-level jobs that it was basically like, okay, you can only afford to take this job if your parents are basically paying your rent. It was, it's, it's very hard for somebody who doesn't come from a certain, from certain financial means. And, and that means a lot of times also that there's not diversity in terms of both like economical background, but also race. And you're, you're getting this, this group of people that has experience that, that all look the same. And so I think now, now they've realized the error of their ways. So a lot of Campaigns and organizations are working really hard to make sure that people have that opportunity to get into the industry, which I think is awesome, getting new voices. And I think we also need to make sure that we're getting voices that represent the country, not only the way that people look, but also like people who are from the middle of the country, people who have come from different financial backgrounds, and just people who can understand what an, an everyday voter might be thinking about and going through because people who have the privilege to to take an unpaid job in in DC probably are not facing the same struggles as most of the country. So right on that point, as someone who's worked a lot in politics and especially on campaigns where you do have lots of young people and as part of the campaigns, either as staffers or actually even as volunteers where they aren't being paid, what would your advice be to uh, young professionals or others who, like yourself, was excited to join a campaign or or passionate about politics, but they feel other pressures in their lives as well. They have to feed themselves their potential family pressures to choose a more safe or traditional career path. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you should never take a job where you don't feel like you can feed yourself or pay your rent or take care of your basic bills. But I think people should think about the short term and the long term of what they want. If politics is something that you see yourself going into and staying staying in for the long run, ultimately, you can make money in politics. It just takes some time to get some experience before you can get to a certain pay level. So there is a payoff eventually if you can stay in it. And I think there's also, to me, there's also like the consideration of like, the consideration of like your mental and emotional health. I think as Americans, 
we spend almost all of our time working now, right? All of our waking hours we spend working. And to me, like, I think it's much more challenging mentally and emotionally to be pouring that into something that I don't care about. I think there's something that's more rewarding about being able to at least use that time to, to do something that you're passionate about. So I think following your passions can also have its payoff from that perspective. Well, hey, Megan, so we always wrap our podcasts with one final question. And so thank you so much for the conversation so far. But I wanted to ask you, as this podcast is how tech becomes law, given your experience, have you seen technology and its design create new rules or laws around how society operates? Well, we talked about data privacy a little bit already. And I think one thing is that websites have just started collecting data on people without really informing them as to how they're going to be using that data or distributing it. People are collecting data and then they're actually selling it to other companies to use it for their own purposes. And consumers who whose data is being collected don't even know that that's happening. So I think that's like this back end thing that where people have just accepted that that it's a standard. But I, I think now, as actual people are becoming more informed on what's going on, they're more hesitant to to give their data away or when people sign up for an app and it says they want access to everything on your phone, maybe maybe not doing that, even if it seems like a fun game, having a little bit more awareness. And hopefully that will lead to more legislation to make sure the people's data is protected over time. Generally, I think if you're going to be seeing advertising, for example, it's helpful if that ad is at least somewhat relevant to you, but that doesn't mean that like every single piece of data about you should be out there in the world for anyone to use. I think that there's some there should be some standard set in terms of like how how you opt in for your data to be collected, what types of data is acceptable to be collected, how data can be bought and sold once you know it's collected by companies. So all of that ultimately needs <laughs> needs new laws. And the other thing that we already you know talked about a bit is just like information information distribution as as the internet basically has evolved and we've gotten social media as well as like everyone's become a content creator it's people used to get their news from from the tv or from certain actual news sources but now information is just being gathered by anyone and everyone and distributed in so many different ways that it's really changing how how we think about things and how society operates in some ways. Just even if we look at the way that vaccine misinformation has impacted our entire healthcare system and at this point is 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 bringing back mask mandates because people don't think it's safe to get the vaccine. We're seeing parents scared to send their children to school and people being scared to get the vaccine because of misinformation that they've read on Facebook. It just the implications are crazy and so widespread and it can I think that as we talked about before, the regulation is just so important, especially when it comes to national emergencies. Like who knows what the next emergency is going to be where people could be seeing misinformation online. I don't think we can assume that this vaccine misinformation crisis is, is one of a kind. I think that we're going to continue to see that people are going to use the spread of misinformation to their advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely some big risks here, some big problems to tackle. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us, Megan. We really appreciate your time. This is a really fun conversation. And thank you for listening. I'm Dhruv Gupta with Jinyan Zhang, and this was How Tech Becomes Law. Thanks for listening to How Tech Becomes Law. 
we are supported by the Public Interest Tech Lab. You can find us online at howtechbecomeslaw.org and on social media channels at techbecomeslaw. The music for this podcast was produced by Clarence Yap. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps other listeners discover us. Thanks again for listening and come back next week for another conversation on how tech becomes law.